Takes a lot longer to get set up these days. <laughs> oh, thank you. And taking this off feels like freedom. I did a um, wedding in the Twin Cities a couple weeks ago. Just went for a day or so, took a plane, and I'm telling you, I don't know if you've been on a plane with one of these on, but they get really claustrophobic after a while. And it is a huge challenge, as is life in general these days. And we're going to see today, if you turn to the Book of Romans, what our response underneath it all should be. Romans chapter 2, and we will be starting today in verse 21. We come today to one of the reasons why I believe strongly uh, in the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture, though honestly, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with it, and that's because if you do that and commit to it publicly, it's harder to go cherry-picking in Scripture according to your favorite topics as a preacher, according to your biases and preferences. It forces you uh, to preach the whole counsel of God, even if you don't feel like it, even if it's well below your comfort level. And today we come to a passage that, to be quite honest, I'd much rather skip over. And as we get going, you'll probably share the same sentiment. But if you do, don't blame me. Blame the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture and God's Word. We'd rather skip over it in a lot of ways, but in another way, what we're going to be talking about today is what we most need at times like these. It's really the solution to our national and even our global situation, and it starts with us, just like it says in First Chronicles, for if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague... Or if I send a plague upon my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If we want healing horizontally, we need to do our business vertically. We're, you might say, three calamities into the 21st century. The first was 9-11, the second was the global financial crisis in 2008, and now the third. They've gotten progressively worse, as if someone's maybe turning up the heat. In the severe mercy of the reckless love that we've been talking about all the way through Romans 1 and 2, which is about the severe mercy of God's judgment, of his discipline upon us for our good. After 9-11, you heard a lot among Christians and non-Christians about how we need to preserve our American freedoms, to fight for the American way of life and all that. And it sounded like a good idea, like it almost went without saying, because it is a good way of life. Or is it all good? What does that really mean, our American way of life? There, there is a lot that's worth fighting for, of course, and we, we, we dare not take our liberties for granted, and well, we've lost the blood of brothers and sisters over the years because of it, but we're going to see today that part of what the American way of life means these days is our freedom to do as we please, which is a perversion of biblical freedom. 
And that's not always good. To enjoy liberty without law, without morality. Just like we just sang. America, the beautiful. Remember the second stanza? America, America, God mend thy every flaw. Confirm thy soul in what? Self-control, thy liberty in law. He shed his grace on us because at one time we confirmed our souls in self-control, our liberty in law. At least we did a lot more than we're doing today, but no longer. So his grace is being removed. Are we confirming our soul in self-control, our liberty in law? I'm afraid that what we're trying to preserve too much these days is liberty without law, without morality, which ultimately means anarchy. And if that's not part of the story of what's going on today, I don't know what is. God giving us over to our choices, the wrath of his withdrawal. We've sown to the wind and we're reaping the whirlwind. Because all along it was not their freedom that so many are so worried about losing as much as it is really their enslavement. And enslavement, as we'll see today, even among Christians, to the very same idols that God's own people worshiped 2,000 years ago. Nothing new under the sun. Enslavement to idols that are now coming down all around us. We've been seeing how Paul's aim in this section of Romans is to show that in in and of ourselves, nobody's good, not even the people of God, except by faith of turning to him in our wickedness for his mercy, by faith that all good comes from God, turning to him for forgiveness and coming back in the fullness of his power. That's the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk that too many believers have forgotten. And we're gonna see today that even as we fight for our freedoms, God's people as true patriots, need to take the lead and forsake their idols. Lest in preserving our liberty, we preserve our slavery and bring on more anarchy. That's the message of COVID-19 in a lot of ways. Forsake your idols or I'll take your idols away. Romans 2, starting in verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Let's stop right there. If you remember, Paul's talking about the Jews as a nation here. God's people and individual Jews. And basically he's saying that they didn't practice what they preached. Just like today both as Christians and as a nation. The same is true with us. We Americans are so confident that we ourselves, as Paul says here, are, uh, and this was two weeks ago, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. We're so convinced that we can be a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, as we seek to convert them to our American way of life. And in many ways, uh, uh, we are these things, but in many other ways, we aren't. And it seems the hypocrisy sometimes is evident to everyone but ourselves. And as evangelical Christians, we can be so confident that we ourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. And the hypocrisy is evident to everyone but ourselves. 
How so? Well, once again, we come today to the guilt of God's people. Last time, before Father's Day, uh, we saw that there's such biblical teaching, there was back then, teaching out of the law, and biblical speaking, speaking out of the law, and yet this week we're going to see that there's such hypocritical living. And now Paul really goes from preaching to meddling. And only because this is the next verse in our verse-by-verse exposition do I dare go further here. Remaining true to God's word, so like it or not, here, here we go. Again, verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And just what does that mean? Next line. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? He's likely talking here about the Jewish flair for doing business and making a profit in one way or another, stealing from people. An unfair profit, which has caused great resentment down through the centuries against Jews. Some of it deserved, some of it undeserved. But of course, it's not only them. I... In my 35 or so years of ministry, I've run into so many businessmen who have been swindled by those who call themselves Christians and attend churches, evangelical churches. Everywhere we've lived, we've heard about it, from Houston to Estes Park, from Roseville, Minnesota to Summit County, Colorado. Some of you have talked to me about this. So many have been so burnt by church-going evangelical Christians that they're, they're automatically wary of doing business with them. What about you? Do you steal? But that's not the only way it happens. In Romans 13 it says that we're we're to render to all that is due them, and in particular tax to whom tax is due. That's not the only way that uh, we steal in business. We do it on our taxes. All all the surveys show that Christians cheat on their taxes at about the same rate as non-Christians. That is, they steal from the government, really from God. Because in the same passage, Paul says, because of this you pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. Romans 13, 6. And the Roman system of taxation was far more corrupt than ours, and yet Paul said, you better pay up, because they still represent God. But it's not just indirectly that we steal from God. We do it in his face. The average churchgoer in America tithes 2% of their income. The average evangelical church church attender tithes about 6% of their income. We, who are some of the richest Christians in the world, for whom 10% should be just a minimum. Though, of course, it's by grace as God leads you. We don't want to be legalistic. But surely this is the case. For those who don't give God his due, it should be no wonder that there's never enough money. The Bible predicts it. There is one who scatters yet increases all the more, Proverbs 11.24, and there is one who withholds what is justly due and it results only in want. Like the Jews uh, like, uh, in Malachi 3.8, he says, will a man rob God? This is serious stuff here. Yet you are robbing me. Yet you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. People talk about their commitment to Christ, but show me a man's checkbook, and I'll show you his true commitments. 
You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You might try increasing it. What do you do if you're doing this? Well, try increasing the percentage of your giving 1% a year until you're where God, you believe God wants you to be. Just do it incrementally. He's patient. He's already been very patient. Or maybe 1% a month if you really want to stretch your faith and then watch what God does. Just like it says two verses later in Malachi. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Malachi 3.10, and test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, you can't outgive God. And in doing this, you'll be forsaking one of the strongest idols of the American way of life, and that is the idol of money. An idol that's coming down around us too, looking what he's doing to our economy. So give it before he takes it. As someone said, the only way to disarm the power of money is to give it away. Otherwise, it'll lay its hold on you. But whatever you do, just don't do what the guy did who couldn't decide what to do. And so he threw up all his money in the air and he said, okay, God, you take what you want and I'll take what comes back down. <laughs> now, I'm, tr- I'm trying to bring a little comic relief here, but <laughs> somehow it doesn't fit. Moving on quickly, verse two. And you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? At the very least, this is the adultery of the heart that Christ talks about in Matthew 5, that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her heart. And there are serial adulterers by that standard among all our churches, given just what we look at for our entertainment choices. But would that that were the only adultery of the heart that evangelicals struggle with? What anonymous survey of pastors in conservative churches ask this, since you've been in the local church ministry, have you ever done anything with someone not your spouse that you feel was sexually inappropriate? 23% said yes. 12%, one in eight, admitted to sleeping with someone other than their spouse. Pastors. If that's true, can you imagine what's going on in the pews? If that's what's happening in the pulpit where a pastor has everything to lose if he's discovered. I don't know what it is in Colorado, but a recent study of Minnesota Christians found that 15% approve of extramarital sex. 36% of American Christians approve of premarital sex. 55% of American evangelical Christians approve of homosexuality, and it's far higher among our youth. 60% approve of abortion. 85% say there's nothing wrong with divorce. Over two-thirds say that doing God's will is important, but they rank it as the 11th of the 17 values listed, lower than health, self-fulfillment, and education. We strayed so far from biblical standards, which is why it's so good to be at a church like this where foundationally we are, uh, we are grounded in God's word as the foundational value that we hold under everything else. This is becoming very rare. Only about half of all believers in America think that they themselves are sinners. 
and a good percentage of the others prefer saying they merely err in their ways. And so it's not surprising that many find this kind of preaching that you're hearing today rather offensive. Why? Well, before we move on, let's look for a second at that, just to put it in a broader context. In good part, even Christians find this kind of preaching offensive in practice because in practice, so many are holding to a feel-good philosophy that says that's the bottom line of what's supposed to happen in the church. It's a no-brainer. It goes without saying, what's the church good for if it doesn't make you feel good? If you can't feel good in church, where can you feel good? I'll tell you where, anywhere. In a fleshly way. Not that a good part of what happens when we get together is not about feeling good, but there's more to it, and it's not the highest goal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It comes as a byproduct of doing biblical things in biblical ways. It's like one pastor said, David Wilkerson, you may have heard of him, he's the highly respected minister of Times Square Church in New York City, God took him about two years ago, founder of Teen Challenge, worldwide ministry to pastors. He said, I believe that the feel-good philosophy of our society has severely infested our Christian community. We are more concerned about being happy than about being obedient. We have lost our fear of discipline And it seems almost inconceivable that God would not want anything less than my immediate happiness. If we feared God's displeasure more and sought our own pleasure less, we would then have greater commitment to biblical standards of morality. Certainly, we pastors need to build up and encourage the body of believers. That happened last week with the Father's Day message. But we must also lovingly declare sin as sin and that disobedience will lead to judgment. Beloved, this is God's concept of revival. It's all about sweeping out every chamber of our heart that's unclean and unsanctified. He wants no dark places left, no no strongholds for the evil one. You know, years ago, a great evangelist, R.A. Torrey, some of you may have heard of him, gave a prescription for revival. Revival to any church or any community or any city on earth. And the first was this. Let a few Christians, it just takes a few, a faithful remnant, which we've got here. Let a few Christians get thoroughly right with God. If my people... If this is not done, the rest will come to nothing. At the turn of the century, James Burns wrote a book called Revivals, The Laws and Leaders. He studied the history of revival and and in the opening chapters, he discusses what he calls the laws of the absence of revival. The first of which was this, the first tendency is for the doctrine of the church to lose its power of convicting the conscience because of a feel-good philosophy. And if that's true, then what we most need in our day if we're really serious about revival is just that, convicting the conscience. And that's just what Paul's doing here because he was aiming at revival with the Romans and the Jews before the judgment of God came in 70 AD. He was talking about the coming judgment. 
So he's seeking to convict the conscience here in love. So like it or not, next verse in our verse-by-verse exposition. Verse 21, again, you who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then finally, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Rob temples? What could that possibly mean? Well, Paul's talking about taking idols from an idolatrous culture where we don't belong and robbing those idols and setting them up in our own homes. Who we, in theory, who have forsaken the idols of our culture. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples of their idols and take them as your own? So what about the idol of sex? You may abhor that one, but have you worshipped the idol of success? Some of you, some abhor the idol of financial greed, but especially as we grow older, we tend to worship the idol of financial security. We often worship the idol of, of brawn and beauty in those health clubs. And now they've been shut down. He's bringing them down, our idols. And we worship the idol of beauty at the cosmetics counter and in the plastic surgeon's office. And women across the country and even in the church are tyrannized. They're traumatized by this God that we serve, this God of beauty, this cruel, uh, anorexic, airbrushed figure of beauty that men bow down to in their living rooms, in their temples. And for whose sake women willingly afflict themselves, disfigure themselves, and even starve themselves. That's what idolatry does to us. It's like Philip Yancey said in Christianity Today. We choose young girls of promising beauty, and then we starve them, we pad them, we carve them with a plastic surgeon's knife to transform them into supermodels who will then leave less endowed women, 99.9% of the female population, with a permanent self-image crisis. Oh yes, we worship the beautiful women enshrined on those glossy covers of our magazines, most of whom don't even exist in reality. At least not in the form we see them there. Yet so many are trying to be like them. And if that's not worship, I don't know what is. Do you rob pagan temples? We serve the idol of endless entertainment at whose altar we sacrifice vast amounts of our precious time, amusing ourselves to death, which is the title of a book by a sociologist, non-Christian, Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's kind of like the cartoon of the guy in the living room. with his, He's got his hand on the remote, and he's saying, Hun, anything you want to talk about before the football season starts? <laughs> it's funny, but of course it's not. Because in particular, we worship, dare I say it, the idol of sports. And that idol's coming down too. He's emptied all the stadiums. But are we getting the message? So what do we do? Pray that he take the plague away so we can resume our idolatry? 
No, we need to repent of that idolatry and then maybe God will relent if my people. Not that sports as a pleasant diversion is wrong, but it can become a lot more than that because most idols are good things that we end up worshiping. There's a lot more here, but we'll have mercy and move on. Verse 23. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written, you who boast in the law, verse 23, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And as a result, is it true today that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us? Just as it is written. People noticed back then and people notice today. There's nothing the world hates more than a hypocrite and they can smell it a mile off. We do get a lot of unfair press as Christians, but we also have a lot of it coming. Because these days more than ever, people are looking for authenticity, especially the postmodern generation. Yet the gap between what we say and what we do has never been greater. Someone said the cultural Jesus asks you to believe the right stuff. The biblical Jesus asks you to live the right stuff. One of my seminary professors, John Woodbridge, put it this way. He said, we may sincerely profess orthodox doctrine, yet find that our primary interests revolve around ourselves rather than the neighbor we are called to love or the God we are commanded to honor. We may bemoan the moral decline in our country, but our actual concern, if the truth be known, is not to see a vital Christianity flourish, but rather to see a more orderly and less violent society in which to live out our comfortable and self-satisfied lives. Our American way of life. And he's bringing that idol down too. So often Christians have such convictions but they're laced with such compromises and so little compassion, at least the way we can come across. Therefore, just as it is written, again, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. God forgive us. We'll move quickly through these final verses starting in verse 25. And he brings it home to the heart in terms of what we should do about all this. For if indeed circumcision is of value, if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Back then circumcision was the sign of their religion just as baptism um, is the sign of ours. And the principle is as true today as it was back then. He's saying your Christianity is uh, unchristianity you might as well not even be a Christian if you don't practice what you preach. Just like Christ said, you shall know them by their fruit. Verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded by God as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? 
who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? That is, God's people are not those who have been circumcised or catechized outwardly. They're not those who say the right things and perform the right rituals. No, God's people are those who have been circumcised inwardly. And here we get to the bottom line application of all of this. God's people are those who have been circumcised. Indeed, who are regularly circumcised inwardly because we still got the flesh. And what that means is this. It's just like circumcision. God's people are those who have been cut. Like, Lord willing, we've all been cut today through the word and the spirit. If you've been cut, it's a sign that you're one of his. They've been cut to the quick by conviction of sin. The wellspring of revival. by the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ as we saw a year ago when we first got here in Revelation chapter one. We saw this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They're slain in their spirits, just like the apostle John was in Revelation one, uh, who fell at his feet as a dead man. Forgive me, I'm nothing but a sinner apart from you. Their hearts have been broken and they confess their sins and ask Christ to help them. Not just when they believe, but all through their life because we're sanctified in the same way that we've came to faith. They ask God to help them just like John did and John repented under the weight of God's glory and at the sharp two-edged sword that came out of his mouth, he fell at his feet and then he received Christ's mercy who touched him and said, do not fear. I died for you and I rose again. That's how we connect with his mercy. Out of our emptiness, that's how we connect with his fullness. Even the Apostle John, best friend of Jesus, at the end of his life and all his maturity was like slain with conviction. So take heart. He needed it as much as we do. If my people. You know, Henry Blackaby, some of you know him. He's the author of the Experiencing God series. Uh, he was speaking at a conference at the Billy Graham Training Center in 1999 and one of the participants uh, asked him a question. He said, uh, they said, what do you see as the future for the United States? James Dobson in his monthly newsletter quoted Blackaby's reply. This was 1999, two years before 9-11. If you put the U.S. up against the scriptures, we're in trouble. And if we were in trouble back then, how much more today? I think we're very close to the judgment of God. The problem of America is not the unbelieving world. The problem with America is the people of God. You see, right now there are just as many divorces in the churches as outside the churches. There's only 1% difference in gambling outside the churches as inside the churches. George Barna did a survey of 152 separate items comparing the lost world and churches, and he said there is virtually no difference between the two. 
How should we then live? This is a long answer to a short question, but it depends on the people of God. I hope if you don't hear anything else that comes from this conference that you will understand that God's people hold the destiny of America. Don't fuss at the world. It's acting just like it's nature. Duh. Don't blame the darkness for being dark. Who do you blame? Blame the light for not shining in the darkness. We've got to be salt and light again. And then he concludes, God's attention right now is on his own people. And if I gave one statement, it will be the future of America rests in our hands. And then Dobson concludes, he quoted this, and then he concludes it by saying this, sadly, I believe Dr. Blackaby's assessment of America is entirely accurate. If revival is to occur, it must begin with the household of faith, and if not there, then the judgment of this nation is likely. And then came 9-11, and we didn't get it. And then it was the banks in 2008, and we didn't get it. And then came the plague. We're three cataclysms into the 21st century. And are we getting it today? Brothers and sisters, the future of this nation is indeed in our hands. We're not just playing church here. God's not just playing God. His judgment, his discipline, the severe mercy of his reckless love as we've seen all the way through chapter one and now in chapter two is as real as our faith needs to be. Which is the overall point of this chapter. In a severe mercy, God's wrath will eventually expose the evil in everybody and say, is this what you really want? He'll give us over to anarchy, which is the whirlwind we're reaping because of the wind. He'll bring down our idols as a way of getting our attention, not their attention, our attention. It's the overall point of this chapter. It's like John the Baptist said, the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. He does this regularly through history to wake us up and to keep the world from becoming hell on earth. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke 3, 9. John was speaking to the religious people of his day, just like Paul was. And just like Paul did, John went on to say what both of them would come back and say today. And just what is that? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the, his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? How should we then live? Good question. As we draw this to a conclusion, what shall we do? Well, John went on to list some very specific things. Are you committing adultery? Are you stealing? Are you robbing temples? Robbing God? Then prove your faith is real. 
by doing something real with your faith. Like giving back what you overcharged that customer maybe. Like convincing your wife that you'll love her no matter how much she weighs rather than holding uh, over her head this cruel idol of beauty that you're bowing down to. Like limiting how much you watch football if it ever comes back. Maybe some of you need to stop watching it. Like telling someone what you did behind closed doors last week, bringing it to the light and asking them to pray for you and asking for help. Prove that the Son has made you free. We don't have to be bound by these things. When mastered by God, said one man, men become masters of themselves and their circumstances. When mastered by anything but God, by any idol, they become the victims of themselves and their circumstances. And we today are a victimized nation by ourselves. Preserve our American way of life. There is much that we do need to preserve and that we have rightfully fought for over the years. And we shouldn't take a whole lot of it for granted, but there is also much that we need to forsake more than ever before. The idols of our American way of life, lest we preserve our enslavements. Enslavements to the very gods that his people worshipped 2,000 years ago. Because true Christian liberty is not the freedom to do as we please. No, it's the power to do as we ought. And we've got that power. And how do you get connected with it? Well, it's Paul's application. It starts by being cut to the quick. That's why we have communion every month. It's so important. We go to the cross with our sins and receive his forgiveness. That's the cycle of the Christian life. It starts by being cut to the quick. The power comes when we come to him every day in true repentance and then accept his forgiveness and receive his fullness, the fullness of his power perfected in weakness. And people will take notice. I'd like to close today with a prayer that um, couches all of this in God's mercy, which we need to do, how all of this should drive us to the arms of his relentless love every day. It's from 31 Days of Praise, day 24. Let's pray together. Thank you, my loving and sovereign God, that my failures and mistakes are part of the all things that you work together for good. And so are my tensions and stresses, my hostile and anxious feelings, my regrets, my trips into shame and self-blame, and the specific things that trigger them. I praise you that all the all things you work together for good, including these, can contribute to my spiritual growth and my experience of you. When my heart is overwhelmed, I'm more aware of my need to cry to you, to seek your forgiveness, to take refuge in you, to rely on you. I rejoice that my shortcomings and sins, my fears and anxieties 
keep reminding me to depend on you with all my heart. That they prompt me to trust in your love, your forgiveness, your power, your sufficiency, your ability to overrule, and your transforming presence within me. Thank you for the ways that my shortcomings and failures bring pressure on me to open myself to you more fully and the way they let you show me deep and hidden needs, griefs and hurts that I've never poured out before you, that I've never exposed to your healing touch, and they expose sins that I've never faced and acknowledged. How grateful I am for your constant cleansing as I confess each sin you make me aware of and then turn back to you as my Lord. I praise you that I'm free from condemnation simply because Christ died for me and rose again and it doesn't depend on how well I live. I praise you for how you use my sins and my failures to humble me and for how this opens me to the inflow of your grace, amazing grace, that enables me to hold my head high, not in pride, but in humble gratitude for your undeserved, unchanging love and total cleansing. We look to you alone, God of grace, God of glory. On thy people pour thy power Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.